This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Dreaming of a better sleep? Tossing and turning is not your destiny. And Ollie is here to help. Ollie invites you to sink into sweet, sweet slumber to improve your mental and physical health and overall wellness. More than just melatonin, Ollie's ingredients help you unwind your mind for a delightfully dreamy drift off. Sleep is on the way at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. Hello, and welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm producer Faye Adavita. Coming up, Nabila Ramdani, the writer and broadcaster, discusses her book, Fixing France, a critique of the current French political landscape, asking whether there's still space for liberty, equality, and fraternity in today's republic. Joining Nabila in conversation is Maureen Khan, economics editor for The Times newspaper. Let's join Maureen now with more. Nabila Ramdani is a French-Algerian writer from Paris, who works as an academic, a journalist and a broadcaster, mainly covering France, the Arab and the Muslim world. She's written for publications ranging from The Guardian to The Daily Mail and The Washington Post and broadcast for outlets like Sky News, Al Jazeera and CNN. Her new book is called Fixing France, How to Repair a Broken Republic. Uh, we're going to spend the next 30 or 40 minutes talking about Nabila's motivations for writing the book, some of her prognosticians about the state of France today and also I think a book which is uh, incredibly prescient because by the time you've already hit publish it seems that so many of the warnings that are in these pages are playing out uh, in the French Senate in the French Assembly and across the streets of France uh, as we speak uh, and maybe just on that note um, this is a book which has a, I think a relatively provocative title perhaps uh, especially because you're writing it in English uh, for an international audience, I imagine, to try and understand some of the pathologies of modern France. Why, Nabila, did you think now was the time to write this book? Well, frankly, I think that the direct answer to this is that I think France is an extremely interesting place uh, at the moment and that there weren't many books around uh, really explaining why. And I, I really wanted to fill that gap. Um, you know, I've been writing uh, journalistic articles about France uh, throughout my career, but even the uh, two thousand word feature uh, often felt uh, insubstantial. So, you know, I had a lot more to say about France, and uh, the logical ambition was to write an entire book about it. And you know, they say you write about what you know, and I certainly know masses about modern France and and all of its problems. And I was also, dare I say, very uh, conscious that uh, the book market is dominated by a very privileged uh, class uh, of people who went to the right schools, who went to the right universities, and who come from very rich and, and indeed comfortable backgrounds. And so people like me, who come from a, a far more modest background, immigrant background, a council estate background, are certainly not meant to write this kind of uh, state of the nation books, if you like, and I wanted to change that. But dare I say, more crucially, I wanted to cut through the myths about France. Uh, France is a wonderful country in principle. The constitution of the current Fifth Republic is meant to achieve, uh, you know, liberty, equality, and fraternity for all. But in practice, uh, it has often, uh, you know, achieved the opposite. In fact, it has alienated millions of people from a system that looks after its elite. And, you know, you were talking about, you know, the the fault lines about France and why it's relevant now in particular. And I would say that one of the major fault lines I described in my book is the absurd amount of power invested in one president and indeed the very real danger that this one president might soon be a full-blown extremist committed uh, to state of racism, to put it bluntly. Uh, and that's why I was determined uh, to write this book now. Uh, France uh, is a country that is not adapting to the modern world. 
And I would argue it's going through an identity crisis. And I certainly wanted to highlight uh, these failures and, and indeed provide solutions. And that's why I would say that my book is very much a disruptive book, but in a positive way. It follows in the great French tradition of dissenting progress, effectively. Uh, can I ask about what initial reactions your book has met in France? And and was it a deliberate choice to write this book in English? And, and are you planning of a French translation anytime soon? Yes, I think, you know, France is, is, is a very interesting country. It remains a, a, a riddle in many ways for a lot of international observers. And that's why I wanted to write about it uh, in English to reach out to a, a global audience. Um, I have to say it hasn't been translated into French yet. I, I do hope it uh, reaches the French market uh, for, for effectively uh, to allow the country to, to do some soul searching, which I think is, is, is absolutely needed. Uh, so I haven't had uh, masses of feedback yet from uh, the French public or indeed the French uh, establishment. But what I can tell you already is that each time I uh, brought up the book in discussions with uh, civil servants, um, they just didn't want to talk about it. You know, they invoked what they call the droit de réserve, i.e. the right to abstain from talking about politics precisely because they are members of the government and on the government's payroll, effectively. But in the past, when I have, you know, published hard-hitting articles about France and uh, you know, what, what's wrong with it. I have been met with criticism from uh, civil servants accusing me of being anti-patriotic, and I think that's a very unfair uh, criticism. As I said, you know, my book is very much a, a positive, constructive criticism that hopefully will allow France to look at itself and adapt to a rapidly changing world. Yeah, I think we've we've probably both had experiences as, as journalists writing about some of the more painful sore spots around France. And um, from my perspective, I'm not French, but um, being based in Brussels and writing about European affairs, uh, a constant critique is that you know you don't really understand the country, and uh, Anglo-Saxons can't really un get under uh, get under the skin of France. And what really struck me about the book is that you're completely right. There seems to be a sort of Olympic Games in existentialism around what France is, its identity, a certain degree of French declinism, which you see from public intellectuals um, across the country. But it seems that there are only some types of people that are allowed to be legitimate critics of France. And it always struck me as somebody coming from the UK that those uh, second, third generation uh, immigrants, um, people in the media or intellectuals were never allowed um, to occupy a space where they could think radically about how to change France. This was always something that which is now increasingly reserved to the far right of the political spectrum. And you see that with people like Eric Samor, who go from being public intellectuals to, you know, political figures and even cult icons for the right. And that's why I think the book is is so significant. And you've already touched upon, you know, one of the, I think, delusions about modern France and one of the mythologies that you think is quite poisonous, which is the executive and the power that is put into the hands of the president. What are some of the other sort of um, delusions uh, or mythologies that you isolate in this book as being problematic and something that is holding modern France back? Well, you know, I think France is, is a country made up of very beautiful myths. Um, and to quote um, the um, architect of the Fifth Republic uh, himself, uh, Charles de Gaulle, General Charles de Gaulle's the wartime hero, France is, in his words, a perpetual uh, illusion, and that's why it's easy, in fact, to get lost in that romanticism uh, while missing the, the real story of France. And, you know, sure enough, France is, is the most visited country in the world uh, for very good reasons. You know, visitors primarily go there for all the good things in life, and many even aspire to live there. Um, you know, they like the culture, they like the food. Uh, they like the beautiful uh, landscapes. But there's also um, an extremely generous welfare state that includes uh, universal access to, to education and indeed to healthcare, which is a source of envy uh, around the world. You know, to go on about the positive aspects of, of France, you know, uh, Paris, uh, the capital city, is an Olympic city. It's also uh, the epicenter of uh, ecological hope. You know, it lends its very name to the United Nations Paris Climate Accords of, of 2015. But dare I say, beyond all that, 
there certainly was a need for a book that explains how France is in fact failing to live up to its once exalted uh, reputation and I think impossibly high ideals of liberty, equality, uh, fraternity are the obvious self-identifiers to highlight straight away. And I'll tell you why, because they talk to a France of a belle époque when France uh, allegedly represented not just peace and prosperity, but incredible technological breakthroughs that benefited everyone. It also speaks to a France where the medieval slums uh, that bred disease and discontent in, in my home city of Paris were replaced by a golden modern Paris with avenues and parks and aqueducts. But I think that what makes France especially interesting is that it is overwhelmed by idealism. And this goes back to those who created a republic based on sacred texts that concentrate on enlightenment values that are frankly impossible to apply to real life. And the reality is that France has lost its ground. And this manifests itself uh, domestically uh, in ancient institutions that I contend that I contend are not fit for purpose any longer. You know, the part of this um, crisis uh, engulfs uh, corruption, uh, civil strife, uh, industrial uh, decay, and there's also a sense of downgrading on the international stage. But the classement where France is no longer the the great uh, power that it once was, and um, you know, as someone who was born in France to Algerian parents, uh, I think I'm particularly well placed to uh, examine, you know, this dichotomy in a sense whereby you've got freedom and equality for one group of people, one group of French citizens, but that actually means that another group of citizens is deprived of those uh, same freedoms. So, you know. Again, the reason why I wrote the book in English is that despite this world-famous motto of liberté, égalité, and fraternité, there is, in fact, widespread inequality, clampdowns on freedom and social divisions that really uh, move us away from any sense of uh, fraternity. You spend a lot of time in the book speaking about the perils that have been wrought because of the Fifth Republic. And a lot of that, it seems that the um, there is a sort of original sin that is attached to the Fifth Republic. So you concentrate a lot on the conditions in which that republic was born, um, the Algerian War, how French brutality um, was, you know, m- marked this entire episode at the beginning of this constitution. And perhaps it's something that's never really been reconciled with by the French political establishment. Um, the country's national psyche is the, or- the real origin myth uh, of modern France. Um is it what is the original sin, and how are we seeing the continuation of this, the trappings of the colonial state in, you know, in the twenty first century in, in France, and how much can we trace back to that moment when this republic was born? Well, an awful lot, uh, actually. Uh, I think a fundamental uh, fault line in France today, and arguably the biggest one, is that the Fifth Republic was literally set up as a power uh, arrangement to deal with Algerians. In other words, the Fifth Republic was directly born out of the Algerian War of Independence. And perhaps that's why uh, those of us uh, from an Algerian background are particularly well qualified to analyze the current failings of, of the country. The constitution of the Fifth Republic created what can only be described as a, a president king and this as I was saying, this absurd amount of power invested in one president is the major fault line in France today. And, you know, to give you more specific historical background, which underpins my book, you know, it all goes back to May 1958. You know, uh, the Algerian War of Independence was at its height when European settlers, uh, supported by the French army, launched a putsch against the, the governor general in Algiers. And they called for the dissolution of the government in Paris so that it could be replaced by one that was more explicitly and indeed more robustly committed to the survival of Algeria as, as a colony, which was in actual fact more than a colony, was considered as part of mainland France. 
And the Putschists argued that General Charles de Gaulle, who had been in the wilderness for 12 years after uh, leading the, the, the Free French through the Second World War, they effectively argued that he was the only leader capable of preventing the abandonment of Algeria. And therefore, the National Assembly approved the restoration of de Gaulle to take charge of the country. He was in his 60s by then, um, but de Gaulle said he would only accept this new role after the precondition, um, or under the precondition, that a new constitution would end the Fourth Republic and that it would include an all-powerful president. And so the first president of the Fifth Republic would naturally be General Charles de Gaulle himself. But more than that, he wanted extraordinary powers to deal with uh, the security threat um, that was posed by the increasingly uh, successful Algerian uh, nationalists. And I think that's where the original sin, uh, as you quite rightly put it, comes from. De Gaulle wanted the new presidency to be able to fight all types of dissent with extreme robustness. And this was effectively the foundation of this massively powerful security state that we have today, and indeed the start of a president, an alpha male head of state, who literally lives in a palace and who is commander-in-chief of all the uh, armed forces in France. But more than that, he can rule by decree, just like the pre-revolutionary kings, in fact. He can bypass parliament completely in a manner that is, frankly, woefully undemocratic. And this is where the we get this notion of a quasi-monarchical uh, president. And so one of the main arguments in my book is that the Fifth Republic was created on a democratic deficit, to say the least. And this affects every aspect of French law. And it is a, a deliberate democratic deficit. I mean, these were the explicit conditions in which de Gaulle felt that the country needed to bring back stability. There is talk... Um, it used to be in the far left circles with the party of Jean-Luc Mélenchon for a sixth republic. France, probably more than any other modern European country, is known for this uh, almost constant constitutional revolution. Um, what do you feel about the prospects of a sixth republic? And if you were in charge, and, and I, know, I know the book puts out some recommendations on how France should move to a more parliamentary style of democracy, what could that sixth republic look like and I guess a more sensitive question is, is that how much political and social upheaval would it cause or would you need to trigger such a huge national debate about the need for renewal and change in France today, given how polarized the entire country and so much of its politics seems to be? Well, that's an absolutely crucial question. And I would say that um, the country's constitution cannot be um, rewritten or uh, updated without any major uh, political or indeed social uh, upheaval that would be almost impossible in my view. And the major social and political upheavals come in the run-up uh, to reform, and that's what we're seeing today. Uh, Macron's two terms have been a constant stream of massive riots, starting with the Gilets jaunes, the, the yellow vests, uh, very soon after he came to power in 2017. Uh, they were effectively bringing major cities to a standstill pretty much every Saturday and caused uh, millions of euros worth of damage. There's also the, the constant or regular um, um, uh, youth you know, erupting on housing estates, as we saw this summer alone, following the, the shooting dead of, a, of Nahel Marzouk, a, a French um, teenager of Algerian and Moroccan uh, background who was uh, shot dead by a police officer. And before that, there were huge protests against pension reforms, uh, for example. But instead of listening to the demonstrators, Macron just pushed through his reforms forward using presidential decrees. And, you know, the, the headline change as far as the uh, pension reform uh, was concerned was a rise in the, in the retirement age from 62 to 64 something that infuriated millions of French people. But I think the point here is was not really about the age of retirement. It was more that Macron was not listening to people 
and crucially, he was ignoring parliament. And the constitution of the Fifth Republic empowers the executive at the expense of the uh, legislative um, bodies. And so it creates this kind of supreme leader who pretty much does everything. And the main change I would envisage would be a Sixth Republic that returns power to parliament and so makes France a far more uh, democratic country. And this would end, you know, you know this, the the fact that we have one man uh, who can literally appoint his prime minister, uh, choose his ministers, who can be, you know, um, friends or you know, uh, business cronies or, or, or political um, uh, friends of his. And I think um, it, this would effectively allow uh, uh, prevent him from dissolving, dissolving parliament uh, on a wing. Or, or and and this is also the kind of structural um, flaws that encourage sleaze at the heart of of, of the republic, and um, so, in brief, I would say that a returning parliamentary government and indeed cabinet government over presidential government would be an obvious flagship reform, so that the system doesn't allow one determined individual to take over running the whole show, and not least because of the very real danger of ending up with a far-right uh, president uh, that can roll just like Macron does at the moment, uh, by decree, even appointing unelected bigots to all positions, uh, including that of prime minister. Uh, it's, I think it's a very important question and, and about the about the powers of the French Parliament, and we're actually speaking in a week where I don't think the uh, the Assemblée Nationale has ever had more international attention paid to it, or at least my in my years of of um, you know watching French politics, um, the Parliament has never been so uh, front and centre of political drama, and that's because we are speaking in a week where the uh, French government, the sitting French government, tried to put through a very controversial migration bill, and it um, faced a revolt. So Macron faced a revolt from within his own ranks because that migration bill was going to be passed with the support of Marine Le Pen's um, far-right party and they wanted to avoid that situation and in the end we come up with a fudge where the bill is passed, there is a majority even without the far-right and, and Macron stumbles on. I'm curious, just because this is quite a live event, has the attention that's been put on to the parliament changed anything about the way French people, the French media or even the political class think about the Assemblée Nationale as a body? Um, is this provoking any soul-searching about maybe we could have a slightly different system where the parliament uh, and things that happen in that parliament will be important enough to constrain the options of the very powerful president? Well, you're quite right to highlight what can only be described as a very dramatic week in, in the French parliament. What uh, effectively has happened is that Marine Le Pen claimed an ideological victory in her own words because she has forced Macron to accept, you know, hard right amendments to his immigration uh, bill, uh, which successfully went through Parliament thanks to uh, the, 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 the vote and support of uh, far-right members of Parliament. Um, and um, the far-right is, of course, is, is uh, a huge issue in, in modern France, and, and there's no doubt that the presidential system empowers them. Um, the cruel irony is that uh, Emmanuel Macron came to power um, as a, um, effectively promising to be a bulwark against uh, extremism and especially the far right. And he's now ending up effectively governing with the far right at the very heart of the National Assembly. Let's not forget that the, the National Rally, who was formerly known as the National Front, is, is a party that was fun, uh, founded by actual Nazi veterans. And, uh, and uh, here we are, we could have the leader who could potentially become head of state uh, in 2027, uh, despite having only uh, 89 MPs also uh, in Parliament. But I would say that Marine Le Pen has played the system very cunningly, uh, but a Sixth Republic could easily be organized to prevent extremists like her coming to power without so much as a serious party in Parliament, let alone a parliamentary majority. And in general term, I think there is uh, support, vast support in France for a Sixth Republic, 
being shorthand for a, a different way of doing things, if you like. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,025, 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code P-O-D. That's ShipStation.com with the code P-O-D. Isn't the point of traveling to get away from it all? To feel the best you've ever felt? Then maybe you should check out Aruba. You'll spend your time relaxing on cool, white, sandy beaches and floating in healing blue water. You'll meet locals brimming with gratitude for an island that redefines what a paradise can be. When your trip comes to an end, you won't need another vacation because you just had the vacation. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your trip at aruba.com. I'm interested in your sort of views on on why Macron got to where he is. And you write in the book about uh, meeting him and speaking to him before his 2017 election. As you mentioned, he was the great hope for those who feared the far right. He was the great hope, um, from my perspective at that time, for the European Union as somebody who had ideas to reform um, the state of the EU, to deepen its integration, to increase its powers. Uh, he was a liberal and... Um, to some degree, a liberal strongman, and, and that really attracted a lot of international attention and praise. Was it always inevitable that Macron would end up where he is right now, which is stuck between um, his own party, which doesn't really have an identity, and a far right, which seems to be dictating its agenda? Is your um, sort of diagnostic position that the system of the French Republic will always push any president towards extremes because that's the only way that they can sufficiently govern by having effectively every couple of every four or five years a plebiscite between themselves and an extremist and then to try and position themselves um, as close as possible to the extremist while telling voters that this they are not really um, you know the real deal or is this actually just a, a series of choices that Macron has made policy choices about security about migration about Islam about the economy that could have been avoided if he was a different type of character? Well, I think it's a combination of both, frankly. Uh, when Macron came to power, he was the luckiest uh, president. Uh, um, you know, he won, uh, he, you know, became president of France in the most uh, um, unexpected uh, manner. Uh, and he benefited greatly uh, from the collapse of the traditional uh, parties, uh, the Gaullist uh, conservatives, uh, a party that was mired by slee scandals, uh, despite you know calling themselves Gaullist, which you know draws onto the tradition of uh, you know the general general uh, Charles de Gaulle, um, you know uh, who effectively epitomised the morality and the virtue of, of France. And on the other hand, the the Socialist Party imploded completely uh, with François Hollande, the, the previous Socialist president proving to be completely uh, inefficient. And so Macron, 
um, took advantage of, of of that situation, if you like, um, and, um, and and you know, and and became president of France in the most unexpected manner possible. And the system, as I was saying, the the, the current French presidential system allows for that kind of one determined individual to reach ultimate power. Macron didn't even have a proper political party. He created a, a movement called uh, En Marche. Uh, uh, interestingly, the, uh, the, the the acronym of his movement, EM, uh, is just you know an echo of his own um, initials, Emmanuel Macron. Um, and so he represented himself, uh, basically. But as he, um, you know, um, started to govern the country, he came as a centrist, as a liberal reformist, and very much as a pragmatic politician who claimed to belong neither to the right, neither to the left. Interestingly, he was uh, part of the socialist government. Uh, uh, he was, in fact, Hollande's economics uh, minister, but he had never signed up to the uh, socialist party. And his background is in banking. So he is very much perceived as belonging to this global uh, elite uh, that looks after its own, uh, effectively. And he started to pander more and more to the uh, right uh, votes, to the far right votes, because he knows that issues such as immigration, for example, which are hugely controversial, um, are still uh, very important to uh, what can only be described as parochial France, as a very provincial France uh, that lo still looks inwards. Um, but beyond his own politi political choices, um, I think it's fair to say that it's the, the, the system of the Fifth Republic, the flawed structural um, foundations that allow this kind of quasi-monarch to rule um, you know, uh, by by decree, effectively, and and you know, um, by bypassing the very uh, legislative bodies, and also um, getting rid of all the checks and balances. It does feel like the progressive dream of uh, Macron in twenty seventeen has has very much faded, and it seems difficult to remember a time when he did act in this role. And you know, every time I um, see the French media, I notice that um, only a few days ago. Um, one of the paradigmatic student figures in the 1968 revolutions, Daniel Cohn-Bendit, who put himself behind Macron, has now also abandoned Macron and is urging people to find political alternatives and trying to embolden political alternatives uh, on the progressive left. And it feels like he has been abandoned by so many of those who put so much hope into him in 2017. I think maybe, you know, we should also speak, and we've mentioned in passing a lot, Marine Le Pen, it seems now more than ever that this 2027 forthcoming election won't just be like all the other ones where the far right has also managed to make it into the second round of the presidential vote. And and for memory, uh, Le Pen has been in the second round where she has steadily increased her vote share, but she's never made it past the threshold. And perhaps the system is designed to ensure that that never happens. What are the prospects of a 2027 Marine Le Pen victory? And what would the implications be for France in a country which has already turned right on so many issues? And I also hear in different circles that, you know, what's the most what's the damage that Le Pen can really do when Macron has done so much? And this is uh, something that you hear a lot from the progressive parts of the French left who, you know, uh, maybe call for abstention in voting in second rounds because they just don't see any difference between the two. Does Le Pen represent really a qualitative difference in what a French president looks like and the ideals that she represents, could they actually wreak as much destruction on France and Europe as a lot of people fear? Yes, uh, very much so. Um, not least of all, because uh, I was, um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the roots of, of, of the party that was founded in 1972 by her father, uh, Jean-Marie Le Pen, who is, uh, let's not forget, a convicted racist and an anti-Semite, uh, you know, the, the roots of the party are, are very much steeped in, in fascism. Uh, founding members of the National Front were actual, you know, veterans of the Waffen-SS. Uh, others uh, literally fought within the milice that was, you know, the, 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 the armed branch that collaborated with uh, Nazi Germany. And, uh, you know, uh, this legacy hasn't gone away. 
um, uh, in, in the French political uh, sphere. And, and I think Marine Le Pen's messaging, you know, is very straightforward. It basically boils down to immigration, immigration, and immigration. She wants uh, to keep, you know, anybody who is perceived as an alien uh, out of France, including uh, people who were born and, and raised in France, like myself. And that's very much part of her, uh, the new immigration bill. And then there is this idea that uh, she's creating this, um, uh, you know, fantasy uh, enemy within that basically is anybody who is not of French uh, stock, uh, effectively. So the prospect of having someone like her um, taking complete charge of the country is absolutely uh, terrifying. Her stances on Islam are just uh, equally uh, chilling. Um, and uh, dare I say, um, you know, she's also economically illiterate. So the kind of uh, consti constituency that she appeals to, you know, the left behind France that you find also in, in, in rural, vast rural areas, but also on, you know, industrial towns that have found it very difficult to to move on from industrial decay, uh, these kind of voters would expect an awful lot from, from her, uh, from an economic uh, perspective. They would hope that, you know, she manages to overcome these vast economic injustices, but she doesn't have a clue about how to run a country. And uh, the economics policies are basically non-existent. So it would be a terrifying process prospect, uh, not least of all uh, in the context of the European Union as well, for example. France is, of course, a, a founding member of the EU project. Uh, initially, uh, the national rally was fiercely anti-EU. Uh, uh, she has now, uh, Marine Le Pen has now toned down that uh, rhetoric because she realizes that actually the French uh, get an awful lot out of the EU. Um, and uh, on the international stage, as far as her foreign policy is concerned, that's also uh, quite, um, a, a, you know, a, a terrifying prospect. She obviously was a, um, a, a firm backer of uh, Vladimir Putin in Russia. She visited him a number of times in, in the Kremlin, uh, supported his policies, took Russian loans to, to fund her campaign. And she wants to pull out of the command and uh, uh, system of, of NATO, which is also uh, very controversial. So I don't think she's got the, the staff of a leader at all. She's not only economically literate, but also uh, bigoted in the most, you know, provincial, parochial way possible. And again, this goes back to the, 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 the idea I put out that uh, France has lost its grandeur in many ways, and she epitomizes that uh, uh, downgrading. I think there's also a, a qualitative difference between thinking about the 27 election and perhaps the 2017 election or even 2022, when the idea seemed to be that if France selects a far-right leader, then France will isolate itself internationally in the European Union. I think now it's a case that if you could have a Le Pen president in 27, she could look around Europe uh, and even the US and find bedfellows and allies. Um, we already have uh, Giorgio Maloney, who comes from a neo-fascist party in Italy as a prime minister of Italy. Uh, the Netherlands chose uh, overwhelmingly backed a anti-Islam far-right candidate who sort of mimics Le Pen in so many ways. And then, of course, there is the prospect of a Donald Trump re-election. Uh, add to that people like Viktor Orban or Robert Fico in Slovakia. And I think the story is less of France being isolated, but even worse prospect of a far-right France finding bedfellows to change the agenda to create a more far-right Europe and a more far-right international Western foreign policy. And perhaps one of the first tests of that will come uh, in the summer, uh, just upon us in 2024, where Le Pen's party will be standing for the European Parliament's elections. And these are often seen as not always accurate, but they're definitely proxies for what's been happening in a country domestically. Um, is there any debate about the the resurgence of the Rassemblement National as, as soon as the summer of 2024? Is this something that is on the agenda uh, among the French political establishment or are they too busy fighting sort of more short-term 
fires right now? Well, you know, the, the very fact that she's now a part of the a governing coalition with the with the Emmanuel Macron's Renaissance Party in Parliament uh, sums it up really, and it sums up this um, uh, prospect of of having her as the next president of France. Uh, it, at the moment, it looks like she's got a really good chance. But I would contend that this is part of uh, my main argument, which is that France isn't uh, adapting uh, with, you know, or keeping up with uh, a rapidly changing world. The fact that you know she represents the best that can that France can offer is is not only farcical, but it's also a daunting prospect. And if we look around the world, the successful uh, so-called civilized nations which are um, often referred to as the Anglo-Saxon nations by the French, um, do things differently and they do things uh, far better than It's interesting that you mentioned the, the Anglo-Saxon nations. So I'm, I'm sitting here speaking to you from London. Uh, often when I have um, briefly intervened in French political debates, I'm usually met with the criticism that, you know, the Anglo-Saxons have done everything wrong and that's exactly where France doesn't want to go down. It strikes me that in the in the current sort of culture war phase of, of political life in the West, France has sort of two others. One is the long-standing other of the migrant, uh, the Muslim, the North African second or third generation French citizen, which represents a threat to French society, French values, everything France as a post-enlightenment nation thinks of itself. And then on the other hand, you have the Anglosphere. And this is also a bad alternative because they have you know, ultra-liberalized labor markets. Uh, they're obsessed with wokeism, transgender rights, uh, multiculturalism. And these are also seen as to be equally evil and sort of antithetical to the French identity. Um, why do you think the Anglosphere still looms so large in the French psyche and is, is still part of this story of French declinism or uh, the French identity crisis? And actually with the whole wokeism debate, which seems to be cross-partisan, so you hear this on the far left, uh, in the lip, uh, on the right and the liberals all use these terms like wokeism as something that is threatening France and it's coming from America and the UK. Is this also just uh, another level of fragility that we see in the modern French Republic? Or is this actually something quite special about this relationship with the Anglosphere um, that modern France has always had but now seems to be, in, I guess, much more poisonous in so many ways? Well, I think France has always been uh, enormously close to Britain, not just in terms of geography, but because the two countries have a long history of war and, and, and everything has been done to avoid such wars since the Entente Cordiale uh, of the early 20th century. And, uh, you know, American uh, relationships with, with France uh, uh, remain very strong uh, indeed. But... Um, I would contend that uh, American and French relations are also historically fascinating with the two nations learning uh, masses from each other. Um, the, you know, the, 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 in, in terms of concepts such as globalizations and, and wokeness, the so-called Anglo-Saxon nations do things very differently uh, to the French, and this has often been a cause of, of, of great friction uh, in terms of economics. The French are, are, are brilliant at global capitalism. Uh, they, they, they're multinationals such as NVMH um, and L'Oreal amongst the, the, the biggest and, and most successful in the world, uh, along with the, the energy and waste disposal firms and the like. But they are not so successful domestically because the French still don't like rampant free market economics. They are far happier with long lunches and the, taking the whole of August off and um, an early re retirement and the like. And they certainly, um, they like the idea of, uh, they don't like the idea of a Thatcherite revolution. And that's the kind of, um, kind of uh, prospect epitomized by somebody like uh, Nicolas Sarkozy. And, and of course, Mark is often called the president of the rich. And as far as wokeness is concerned, 
the French are actually very socially conservative. They like society to remain pretty traditional, certainly in the vast ways of countryside, um, and, and that make up so much of the country. And so progressive ideas are more prevalent in the cities. But even then, there is nothing like as much wokeness as in the Anglo-Saxon countries. It also seems to be a way uh, to stop France from having conversations about police brutality. Um, so when Black Lives Matter became a global movement, often the response that you saw, uh, and I saw this from French diplomats in the European Union, who didn't want to open this conversation at a European level because these are American problems. These are not French problems. We don't have police brutality. Um, we don't have systematic discrimination against people of color. Um, there's also equivalence, I think, with the Me Too movement, which again uh, took hold in America and then spread across the world. And you saw figures, um, uh, quite prominent figures from French movies and French culture, women of a certain generation who were also trying to push back and saying, well, we can't stop Ben from flirting with women. And actually, this is just about policing um, sexual behaviors. And this is not the kind of stuff that we do in France. So it feels like it's become quite a powerful argument to stop so much of the soul searching that perhaps France needs right now. Um, just before we end, I also want to touch on the foreign policy implications of everything that's in your book. Um, you rightly point out that France is still the most visited country in the world. Um, France still has a huge amount of cultural uh, cachet in so many parts of the world because of its natural beauty and, and its rich history. But uh, it strikes me as somebody who lives in London and who has friends from across the world, but many of my friends come from what's called the Global South, uh, countries in the Middle East and Africa. France actually had the terrible reputation among younger people who actually are far more aware about some of the more poisonous social and cultural elements that happen in France. And this is always a disconnect when I speak to my French friends who really don't seem to understand that people informally boycott France. Um, uh, people in my social circle say that they will never visit France as a form of protest against what they see as the country's you know, deep-seated racism towards its own citizens. This has foreign policy implications. France in 2003 was feted as the European country which stood up most to the US and the UK in opposing the Iraq war. And Dominique de Villepin, uh, who was then prime minister, sort of went viral even back in the day with a speech at the United Nations. It seems that 2003 was probably a high watermark for France. Uh, in particular its relations with Middle Eastern countries, and we've seen to be on a decline ever since. Can you speak about what you think is the international reputation France holds beyond Europe and the West and actually in countries further towards the East, also in Africa? And maybe uh, by concluding, we could also think about how France has tried to navigate the crisis in Gaza, and it seems that they've been stuck between two responses at home domestically, uh, Macron and the French government were one of the first to say that they didn't want to have pro-Palestinian marches on French streets. Um, they went as far to say that they would be banned, even though people have then gone out subsequently and, and protested. But Macron has also, as he often wants to do, put himself as in a position of a global mediator, calling for a ceasefire before many of his colleagues in the European Union and placing France again in that sort of role as being a constructive ally to countries in the Middle East. It seems to be more paradoxical than it's ever been given the domestic posi position. So how would you judge where Macron and France right now thinks about itself as a, as a global power? Well, I think, you know, speaking of very current uh, events that are unfolding, and I think the Israel-Palestine conflict has always been huge uh, in France. Uh, the country is home to probably the largest uh, of Muslims, uh, the largest, it's, it is home uh, to the largest Muslim a community in Western Europe and Muslims who can trace the background to North African countries that went through horrific colonial experiences as well. And so the support for Palestinians is naturally uh, massive. But despite this, uh, recent administrations, including Macron's and Marcel Hollande's uh, before him, uh, have tried to clamp down on protests in support of Palestine. We're showing uh, an awful lot of support to uh, pro-Israel groups. And as you quite rightly highlighted, this uh, it stands in sharp contrast with France's uh, more traditional uh, pro-Arab position, not least of all, uh, in its opposition to the Iraq war, for example. And so the banning of pro-Palestine 
uh, March, it has been quite uh, pathetic, frankly, especially given the number of non-Muslims who turn up at these rallies, including masses of Jews and, and those without faith. I've attended a number of those rallies, and I can assure you that faith plays a, a very little part in why people are demonstrating. And when those protests do go ahead, they're extremely peaceful and, and very well organized. And I'm afraid that the, the bans all play to the anti-Muslim bias in French uh, society uh, as laïcité, which is uh, the French version of secularism, is used or indeed weaponized to clamp down on all strong cultural and religious expressions. And so there is no doubt that the right uh, and indeed the far right are currently using um, Israel and, and Palestine as another means of uh, planting down on, on Muslims uh, generally. And as far as Macron's role is concerned, I mean, he likes to project himself as somebody who can get on with everybody. And so he's offered himself as a mediator uh, in, in the current hostilities. But, you know, he's, he's failing miserably, as ever. We've all, so we also remember how uh, he failed uh, to stop uh, Putin's Russia invading uh, Ukraine, for example, and his influence on, on warmongers like Netanyahu were even less uh, uh, effective. Nabila, we haven't even touched on so many issues that I want to talk about. The word laicity hasn't come up so much in this conversation. But um, I'm afraid for everyone who is interested in all the things that we didn't get to touch on, I would recommend that you pick up Nabila's fantastic book. I think it's one of the most important interventions in recent years about understanding a country which is so important for, for Brits, but also for the European Union and anyone who really wants to think about how modern multicultural post-colonial societies are navigating very difficult economic, social and political terrains. Nabila, thank you so much for joining me and thank you Intelligence Squared for hosting us on this podcast. Thanks for listening to Intelligence Squared. If you want to keep up with everything going on at Intelligence Squared, sign up to the newsletter. Head over to intelligencesquared.com to get the heads up on all our live events coming up. And members can also peruse over 20 years of our back catalogue, featuring some of the world's great minds. That's all over at intelligencesquared.com.